Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar. I am Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC and your host. Before we go to today's guest, Professor Mark Myrowitz, here is your JPC commercial. So people ask me why, as we are well into our third year of webinar programming, and so many of you come back so often, why we're still doing the commercial. Thank you for asking, because it allows me to brag in two different ways. First of all, about the JPC and our work. And secondly, to say that there are new people with us uh, every week, every time we do this. That's great. And you, by the way, can always send your webinar invitation to your friends and help us expand the circle. So the commercial, the JPC was established in 1985 as a 501c3 organization providing analysis of both foreign and domestic policies. You can find us on our website at jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can sign up for our insight articles. You can read our magazine, In Focus Quarterly. By the way, the spring issue is up right now for In Focus. It's our Israel issue. And I have to tell you, I think it's one of the best issues we've done. Granted, I'm prejudiced, but I think it is a really great issue. So jewishpolicycenter.org. The JPC supports a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. We support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny them. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, free speech, and intellectual diversity. You would think we have a staff of dozens and dozens of people. We don't. We work big on a small budget. A reminder as we get into um, the program, send your questions on the Q&A function we're monitoring. And now our guest, Dr. Mark Myrowitz is a professor of humanities at the Maritime College of the State University of New York. He teaches American history, foreign policy, and the constitution. He holds a PhD in political science from Fordham University and a JD from Brooklyn Law School. His domestically oriented classes include the Supreme Court and the constitution, the immigrant experience in America, American women's history and labor history. We've had him in In Focus Magazine more than once. And if you go back and look again on our website, uh, you will find some great stuff. Today, however, we are gonna tap into his foreign policy expertise and take advantage of his very deep and broad understanding of Turkey and its people, specifically as it relates to the Turkish election and what was apparently to Americans, the surprise win of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But maybe it wasn't a surprise. Maybe we were just viewing it through the American prism on Turkey and the Turkish people. So it's with great pleasure, Mark Marowitz, that we turn to you for expertise and better understanding. And let me start you with a question. Um, what were we missing here? What was going on in Turkey? Thank you uh, very much, Shoshana, for the privilege of again um, having the opportunity to present the webinar for Jewish Policy Center and for you and for our participants. Um, and um, the topic of the Turkish election is one that has prompted uh, an enormous amount of speculation and analysis. It's, it's you know, it's, it's busting the Google numbers. Everybody's interested to know what's the secret to this? Because after all, how is it possible President Erdogan won the election? I and mean, this is the, the puzzlement that seems to be prevalent in American media, among American intellectuals, pundits, experts, analysts, and so forth. And I think that the first place I would start is to say that there is an element here of, I'll call it wishful thinking, but actually where these pundits and analysts actually have a predilection, a bias. Uh, we know about our biased media when it comes to Israel and so forth, and we read the New York Times, and we know what we're reading is biased. So question is, why is that so? Well, they have a certain element of um, uh, where they come from and the way they look at it. And the great word that you use, the prism of how to analyze these issues. I will give you one or two good examples of this uh, situation. So first of all, um, a leading commentator on Turkey, uh, Asli Aydin Tashbash, who writes for the Washington Post, posted a tweet that has become very famous among, <laughs> among Turkish diplomats and others. And this is what, this is what she says. Erdogan won, 
But this is not the end of the story. Nearly half of Turkey's voters, 25 million people, the coastline, the educated, the best and the brightest, want to change and democracy. Let's not lose sight of that. Interesting comment. It reminded me very much of Hillary Clinton's deplorables. Here is the pundit, the expert on Turkish politics, in effect stating that the other 25 million who voted for Erdogan, right? because remember the result was very close, were actually not educated, not the best and the brightest, uh, not sufficiently knowledgeable, and they were failing and so forth. Now then if you look, for example, at Foreign Policy Magazine, I'm not picking on anybody in particular, just because it's interesting, if you look at the, um, if you look at the, um, uh, I just, I just tweet, I just put in Turkey in Foreign Policy Magazine. I'll just read you the titles of what you get on the page. What if Kılıçdaroğlu wins the election? Reading the vote won't be easy for Erdogan. Can the Kurds stop Erdogan's bid for power? What happens when a Turkish president loses an election? Nobody knows. This is exactly the material that's been presented by the experts on Turkey. And guess what? If they had bet in Las Vegas, they would have been wrong because in fact, Erdogan, now it's interesting the way the New York Times uh, did its spin because after the first election, President Erdogan got five more points than the uh, nation's alliance. I mean, he got about 49.5%, admittedly not enough to win the election outright. But according to New York Times, this was a failure. But if you think about it, it actually really was a victory. I mean, because he won the election, but he didn't quite get enough votes to, to win the win outright, which he did the second time around. The second time around was a close election, but he won. So again, I think there's an element of this analysis among the Western pundits, the American pundits, which suffuses this analysis where candidly, they're not really seeing the election and trying to understand why the Turkish people, despite the economy, despite the earthquake, despite the problems with Syrian refugees, despite all of this, Turkish people still voted uh, to reelect President Erdogan. So why? Uh -huh. So this is a very good, interesting question. So everyone can have their own ideas about it, but I will give you my, my, uh, my take on it. Um, the reason I think that the Turkish people elected Erdogan really has a lot to do with the idea of what I would say is uh, Turkey matters. Turkey matters in the world. And I think this has largely escaped the cloud that many of our panatu not to you know you know dwell on that too much, but if you think about it, if you go through it, here is what the Turkish people are feeling. They've been written off, um, and sometimes treated not very uh, warmly by the United States and its leaders. But look at the. Look at what Erdogan has achieved. I'm just a few things, right? For example, he brought the grain out of Ukraine, right? He got resources from the Black Sea, Black Sea gas. He was a key player in the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And amazingly, and you can make the list a very long list, he is a global interlocutor. In fact, if you look on Twitter and on social media, you will read that the leaders of the world have been falling over each other to congratulate President Erdogan on his victory. That is no simple or unimportant point. Remember the history of Turkey, going back to its formation of the Republic in the 20th century. All the Western powers wanted to dismember Turkey. They couldn't do it because Ataturk came along, saved the Turkish nation and venerated by the Turkish people for that. But on and on, from the point of view of Turkish elites looking at America and the West, they don't give us sufficient respect. And I would say, um, and I always mention this point and something I've learned, 
you know, when when Turks do a toast, right? Now I know we we uh, in our world we say l'chaim to life, but the Turks say sherifeh to our pride, and that is so important. Here is a leader who has been able to be a player. He's a global player. He's a player in the region. He's a player in Africa, Asia, in Europe, a player in NATO. He has the unique opportunity. What he did is he has not adopted the sanctions against Russia, yet he provides drones to Ukraine, right? And supports the uh, Ukrainian people. No one else has been able to do that. He's had some mediation sessions, so you could make a very long list of things that occurred. Now, of course, the pride factor, I think, is fundamental. There was certainly elements of the election itself that were failures on the part of the uh, opposition coalition and why I think they lost. In other words, first of all, Turks have not had very good experiences with coalitions historically. That doesn't mean anybody else does. We look around the world, in Israel, elsewhere, and we see, we see coalitions, a bunch of people get together and then they end up fighting with each other. And that's exactly what it would have happened here. You had a table of six, six opposition parties, very disparate ideologically, got together on the one unifying point. We got to get rid of Erdogan. That was the glue that kept them together. Aha. Uh -huh. Now, interestingly, one of their members, Meryl Akshiner, of a very important party, E party, she actually dropped out. She said, I'm, I'm, I'm rebelling. I don't want to be part of this coalition. She was wooed back into the coalition. But even so, Kalish if I read this correctly, said that if I get elected, all of your parties, all of my coalition are going to be equal. Now, the E party, which is a significant party, didn't like that idea. So it was a situation which was very fraught. Now about Kalishnarolu, let me just say a few words about him. Um, look, he never won an election. Now, this is why is this important? I mean, I have a, a student, Turkish student at Maritime, and I asked, you know, what's your opinion of the election? And the answer was, he never won an election. And so, okay, I, that doesn't mean anything. It's not terrible, but added to the fact that the formidable problems that Turkey uh, is faced with in the world. I just, you can make a list, Syria, um, Syria, not just Syria with refugees, but Syria with the situation with the Kurds, with the Russians, with, with you know, ISIS, I mean, and of course, Iran and Egypt. And I go on and on, the whole Middle East, the whole world is exploding. And there is Turkey sitting in the middle of Europe and Asia, and it's in a, as my friend, a Turkish diplomat told me once, we live in a tough neighborhood. And that's true, it's a tough neighborhood. And you have to have leadership skills to negotiate that. A successfully or unsuccessfully, you need a leader to do it. And I think that that's where there was a real deficit. Now, just important to understand, what about Kalishdarolu? Now, with Kalishdarolu's coalition lost, in effect, the first, the first election, but they also lost the parliamentary majority. That is crucial. Why? Because one of Kalishnarolu's um, uh, policy points was, you know, you have a presidential system, the president has too much power, I'm gonna change it back to the way it was before, I'm gonna give the, I'm gonna have a parliamentary system. In order to do that, you need a supermajority in the Turkish parliament. And the truth is the Kalishnarolu Nations Alliance didn't get a majority. So that was off the table. Next point was, um, you know, what about the refugees? Now, I'm just gonna say that in all the literature, including the literature by our commentators, they keep on referring to the idea that Kalish Darolu is a great supporter of democracy and freedom. Yet the, his party put posters up on lampposts that said, Syria Lair get a jet. Syrians out. And there were tweets that said, refugees and asylum seekers out of the country, throw them out. This was part also of one of the minority parties that joined links with him. But can you imagine in the United States with all the immigration, I'm just saying, it's not comparable, but I'm saying in the United States, can you imagine if all over Texas, 
they took lampposts or at the, um, on the corner, there'd be post-its that said, Mexicans out of the country. Can you imagine the howling and screaming that would be going on in our system? We wouldn't accept it. And we wouldn't certainly, as one commentator compared Kalishna Rola to Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi would have put up signs to throw people out who are living in safety in Turkey after being subjected to the butcher of Assad. I mean, he did it because he thought he could use this strategically to get votes. It didn't really work. It didn't work whatsoever. Now, one other point about Israel, and I want to mention this is very important. You know, we, we can do, it's Monday morning quarterbacking, but it's this interesting point. What if Kalish Darol had gotten into office? What would the policy have been to Israel? Now, we know that President Erdogan has been making some very good forays with dealing with Israel. As a matter of fact, uh, you can read the messages that were sent by Netanyahu and by President Herzog, uh, very warm messages. And in fact, the reaction of President Erdogan reiterating his thanks for Israeli search and rescue following the recent earthquake. Israeli relief to Turkey during the earthquake was momentous. And furthermore, it was recognized by the Turkish people. I say, I, I looked on Twitter and many Turkish, many Turkish commentators and people, ordinary people, all the flags they listed of all the countries helping Turkey, there's always an Israeli flag. That meant a lot to me. And in fact, um, uh, Netanyahu said um, that we want to expand the state of Israel's circle of peace. Warm, warm phone calls, warm. And who would have thought this was possible? This is Kalish Darolu. Kalish Darolu's comments about Israel, albeit not in this particular election, he says, after Mavi Marmara, there is a price for monitoring our citizens in international waters. Um, my message to Israel is that this issue is not close to us. And then he said that when he visited the family of a, a Turk who was killed on the Mavi Marmara. As far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, just in terms of being a foreign policy leader, I have a few words to say to bin Salman. Murder on our land also has his price. Our account with him has not been closed. Now, I'm sorry to ruminate on this, but if this is the way, you know, when you're in, you're using international relations has to build alliances, not to slam them down. And this kind of rhetoric, I think we didn't know how it would look had he been elected, but the truth of the matter is it was widely ignored in the commentary on Kalishdorol. So I think it's a combination of Turkish pride and a feeling that Erdogan had leadership skills and that those skills were needed in order to deal with the many momentous issues going forward for Turkey in the region and in the world, and then also the internal issues in the coalition. So let's look at internal issues because everything you've said so far is based on what the Turkish people might have seen about Turkey's role in the world and how Turkey uh, maneuvers itself in the world. But inside of Turkey, you have enormous disasters. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported yesterday that the Turkish lira has hit an all-time low. You have the earthquake. Um, can I just can I just pause a minute and just close my window because I'm just very very noisy. <laughs> yes. And while we while we let Mark close his window, uh, let me just remind you that um, we'll be back again, and you can let your friends know that we're doing this. And here he is. So we move back to the program. So what about? all of the kind of wreckage. And I would say, I would say reverberation, but after an earthquake, that's probably not the most politic word to use. What about the internal issues? Are the Turks really focused outside or are they worried about inflation and building standards and uh, the lira? Where do they come out on that? And, and how do they feel Erdogan's doing? Well, you know, <laughs> Again, this is the, you know, the idea, you know, James Carville said it's the economy stupid and everybody thought that with the points you're making, 
the economy is not doing well. And this is also based on Erdogan's uh, economic theory, which is about interest rates going down, helping the economy, which most financial analysts say is not true. Um, and um, and so the I think the question, and of course the earthquake. I mean, the earthquake was a you know a, a seminal moment for Turkey. Obviously, fifty thousand people killed. Um, and of course, uh, questions raised about the standards of the buildings and so forth, uh, pancaking without, you know, without support. So that that's there. Um, but uh, not to, you know, to go back again, and I just say, I will quote for a moment of something very interesting, if I can find it, uh, in the New York Times, actually. It's Brett Stephens, though, so it's not, not so horrible. But he has, a, he, he has an interesting, uh, he talks about, uh, trying to understand uh, why this election took place. And he quotes a, um, just a, a Turk who was quoted in The Economist. Why is it that we voted for Erdogan? Well, we love him, said this resident, for the call to prayer for our homes, for our headscarves. And then, interestingly enough, here is the song, which if you watch uh, when President Erdogan was singing on his balcony of his palace, of his office, uh, when after he won. This is the song that people were singing. He is the loud voice of the oppressed. He is the free voice of the silent world. He is as he seems, taking his power from the nation. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, man of the people, lover of truth. Now, you know, Americans might scoff at that, scoff at that but I think um, it's kind of giving... Um, it's a leap of faith uh, more than anything else. It's clear that the number one issue that Turks are thinking about is the economy uh, and the need to bolster the economy. And the way this was done was previously bolster the economy about bringing in foreign investment from Middle Eastern nations, uh, trying to bolster the economy. The key decision that Erdogan has to make now is who is this going to be his finance minister? And the person that he is considering is Mehmet Shimshek. Uh, and, and, and Mehmet Shimshek, I think, is, as I understand, is well regarded in the, in the markets. And hopefully, well, this is the hope, and um, that, that the advice that he gives to President Erdogan on the economy will be listened to. Uh, President Erdogan seems to still be stuck on this, this philosophy of economics, which is not, you know, again, uh, not, not a winner and not a good idea. Uh, to try to save save the economy and bolstering with foreign investment doesn't really work. So I think the answer is, of course, the Turkish people are preoccupied with their economy, with jobs. It's all that's all about how domestics politics is local. The famous Turkish uh, uh, politician Tip O'Neill uh, coined this idea: all politics is local. It is in Turkey, in the U.S. So clearly, this is what it's about. Now, there is another election coming up. Uh, next year in the municipalities in Istanbul, Ankara, and so forth. And the, and the AK party, President Erdogan's party, lost those elections previously after a, re, a recount that the AK party requested, and then they lost even, even worse. Um, that is something that's on his horizon, and obviously it's not, does not want to lose that election, wants to win that election back for the AK party. So there's still a lot of things in play, and of course the economy is number one, no question, of course. Okay, so this does raise two questions. Um, one about the opposition. So did the Turkish people not have any greater faith in the opposition than they did in Erdogan on the economy? Um, is it possible that that neither one of those was going to really satisfy their concerns about their own economic situation? And so they went with the guy that they felt had more leadership skills, number one. And number two question is, um, was the election fair? was that no election is completely clean. We know that not here, not there, not anywhere. But would you say in your opinion that the Turkish election was actually um, fairly run and cleanly run? Now to your first point about the coalition, um, I think in terms of dealing with the economy, and again, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze the voters, but again, with coalition governments are, are not effective in dealing with really existential crises like the economy is falling apart. 
And then, and also the faith in Kalishka Rolo, in having been a social security administrator, being able to do this. Now, of course, in the coalition, you had Ali Babajan, was a very minor party, actually ended up with one, I think with one seat, I mean, not significant, but he, I heard him when he came to New York and he spoke at Bloomberg headquarters to a whole group of uh, financial people here. Very credible guy, very knowledgeable, well-respected in the market. So yeah, he, they had Baba John, but of course he would have influence in, in the coalition's decisions with one, with a, such a small, uh, a small vote, not necessarily. So um, it's kind of, um, I think that the leadership piece was the key, and hopefully that um, Erdogan can can get the right economic advice and make the right economic decisions, which very candidly have not been made and needs to be made urgently because you can't keep depending on these inf the influxes of uh, foreign investment to bolster you. Um, he's got you know he's and he's got Russia. Russia's giving him a lot of benefits where you know cheap gas, free gas. Uh, all sorts of benefits. And that's not going to go on forever either. Who knows? Russia, to me, is the least reliable, I'm going to call them an ally, although they call each other's dear friends. I think Putin called Erdogan a dear friend or vice versa. Trust me, you do not want to get a hug from the Russian bear. I don't think so. I, In fact, Russia has fought uh, 17 wars and something like that with Turkey. So with that uh, track record. Now, on the elections itself, themselves, look, their turnout on this election was, I think, 80 plus or 90 plus, tremendous turnout. I, I mean, the Turks were meticulous about making sure that the vote was clean, right? And in fact, I saw, I mean, again, this is just, you know, I saw a guy being brought from a hospital in a hospital bed to vote. I saw a lady with a headscarf bringing her lamb to the voting place to vote. A guy showed up dressed as Spider-Man to vote. Even in the United States, we don't do this, but why do they do that? Because they really care about voting. They really care about voting. And that, and I think that on this election, I think the consensus was that it was a, 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 a free election. Okay, now, just to be, to be comprehensive in terms of the, where the critics are on this, and the critics are uh, have said that this election may have been free. And I think they do uh, they do agree that, that it was a free election, no, no issue there. Uh, but they say that uh, it wasn't a fair election. And the reason they say that is because they say that the government controls the media and social media. And then there was something at the first election about some Twitter accounts, Musk being asked to turn down some Twitter accounts, but it turned out that that wasn't completely, or a few maybe, wasn't a pervasive thing. And I mean, look, uh, here's the truth. The truth is that President Erdogan got more coverage on the um, on the um, national television. That's true, and Kalishirolo did not. But I mean, I think that um, um, the retort, at least of the act party of the People's Alliance was that he still was out there. And I think, that being said, and that being a given, it's a fact that you can't dispute it. It's a fact. But look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. I mean, we're not talking about an election in, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, pure dictatorship where, you know, the Soviet Union had 99 percent of the vote for one candidate. In Turkey, you had it was almost split down the middle. Millions voted for one and millions voted for the other. It was not a landslide on the part of Erdogan at all not a landslide. So it looks like the people voted and this is what the people said. Um, and they were, you know, again, um, having their views on how they voted, you know, and, you know, we always try to analyze in American elections, why do people vote the way they do? But, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's a lot of these factors, these ineluctable factors that we talked about. Um, you know, when Erdogan came out, I think it was an, after the first election this time when he won, he made the comment, it's incredible because it doesn't really fit in our square peg in a square hole for American politics. He said, I'm on the balcony, the other guy's in the kitchen. Huh? Okay, because Kalish Darolu was sitting in his kitchen talking about what a homey guy he is and all the wonderful things he's gonna do to Turkey. And, and Erdogan's point was, I'm out on the balcony, I'm out there, I'm doing things, okay? So I'm not saying right or wrong. 
because not my decision, as I'm not a voter in Turkey. It's a question of how do the voters in Turkey feel? And so, um, and I wanted to mention one other thing that's very important. Where did Erdogan go before the first election and where did Kılıçdaroğlu go? This is interesting. Where did they go? You know, sometimes, you know, it's interesting what do politicians do? Well, uh, Kılıçdaroğlu went to Anit Kabir, the mausoleum of Ataturk. Well, it's the Republican People's Party. So showing uh, homage to, of course, uh, one of Turkey's greatest leaders, no question, the father of the Turkish people, no question. But where did Erdogan go? He went to Hagia Sophia, which is a mosque, which used to be, you know, a um, Eastern Christian, Eastern Orthodox church. I mean, it is now, it was a museum, now it was made into a mosque. I mean, there's a certain significant symbolism in that uh, idea that he wants to resonate with the pious voters and that it means a lot to them that he is pious. In fact, um, it is reputed that if people show up and they smoke, he tells them to put out their cigarettes. He doesn't drink. And I said one of the commentators made an interesting point about the mayor of, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, the mayor of Istanbul, uh, Ekrem Imamoglu, who was uh, going to be a presidential candidate, but then, you know, he was actually accused of insulting the government. So they were going to um, arrest him and all of that. And that's all going on in Turkey as well. But the commentator said, well, Erdogan doesn't drink, but Imamoglu does. I don't know if Imamoglu drinks. I don't know if it's true or not. But the point is, for the pious Turks, this adherence and his wife, Emine, Erdogan's wife, has a headscarf. And maybe Kolesterolos does as well, I'm not sure. But my point is, this resonates with the conservative, pious voters in the heartland of Turkey. And I think, again, and I think and I want to bring up again Asli's point, is that right that only those pious people, you know, I'm going to call them deplorable. That's those are the people who voted for him. But then the educated, the best and the brightest. Oh, they voted for Kılıçdaroğlu. I cannot believe that that's true. Now, one other factor is, of course, the Kurdish vote. Very important. Now, the table of six had six parties, but it also a party called the Hedepan, which is a, a Kurdish party, which President Erdogan said is connected to the PKK terrorists. So his mantra during the campaign was, well, this party, they're terrorists. They are supporting the PKK. So that hurt the coalition a lot. Now I sh should mention for full disclosure that the People's Alliance of Erdogan is allied with a party called Hudapar which is the Turkish Hezbollah party. And, and I mean, I don't know what to say about that, except that, um, you know, some Turkish friends of mine have made comments about it and it's befuddling uh, to see that, um, to see that um, uh, extremism in that party. And but that brings it, you, but that brings you to an important point, which is Hezbollah being an arm of Iran. You've talked about how Erdogan thanked the Israelis and, and makes great mention of the of the relationship at the moment with the Israelis and nevertheless has a Hezbollah party in his in his group. Um, what does that tell you about the long term for any of this? How is Turkey's relationship with Iran in the future going to impact its relationship with Israel in the future? If I had to choose one, I know which one I would choose. Which one would Erdogan choose? Now about the Turkish Hezbollah, I'm not sure that they are directly linked to the to the Party of God, the, the you know Iranian Party. I'm not so sure, but you know they're certainly not on the list that we would put of you know of, of people we would support or be in favor of, and why that party is there uh, as part of that coalition because it doesn't really bring much juice to the coalition. The party that brought the juice to the coalition was the MHP, the Nationalist Party. Before I turn to Iran, I did want to mention one thing that we should not mention, which is important. In the first election, we had Kılıçdaroğlu, we had Erdogan, but then we also had Sinan Oğan, who was a nationalist, who was a breakaway from the Nationalist Party coalition with Erdogan, which also had an alliance with another party as well, uh, which is Umit Ozda. Okay, so that party got 5.2% of the vote. 
Um, now, what happened was now we are in the runoff and the question was like, what are you guys going to do? You're now you're running the country. You're the guy. You're the kingmaker. So interestingly enough, this little alliance, Owan said, I'm going with Erdogan. But then the other partner, Ozda, said he's going with Kalish Darovo. And the idea, maybe the idea was they wanted to kind of neutralize each other. But that was very, very important to the victory of uh of Erdogan, it added on some additional votes and uh, was very, very important. Now, the subject of Iran, um, this is a very, very problematic question because look, Iran and the Turks have been living in the same area for thousands of years. And, you know, their point is, you know, we have to live with these, we have to live with these people, but it's a very, very tough, tough situation. Like if you look before, if you look a little bit at the region, you see very worrisome signs. Now, for example, in Syria, if you remember, the last conference that they had was with Iran and Turkey getting together at a meeting to work out something with Syria. So Iran's projection of its power is significant, added on to the Chinese uh, matchmaking between the Iranians and the Saudis, which was very, very, very bad for the future of the Abraham Accord. So, I mean, I think Turkey has a difficult balancing test, balancing option with Iran. It doesn't want to, uh, it's a neighbor, it doesn't want it to write it off, but on the other hand, it has to contend with it. No question about it. But, uh, where, but, but as far as Iran going forward, um, I think the key uh, trajectory for Turkey is with Russia and not so much with Iran at the present time. I think the, the threat there in the Middle East, I don't think it's against Turkey at the present time. Because I mean, if you look at the Iranians, I mean, as fellow Muslims, they don't, they, they're, not, um, they're not officially antagonists, although Iran is a Shiite country and, and Turkey is Sunni, but uh, uh, at the present time, uh, they're acting um, not as lovebirds, but as neighbors which may not be the worst thing <clears throat> from our point of view. But you just said something that I got to stop you and ask you to elaborate. So if Turkey's best friend or Turkey's closest partner now appears to be Russia, what does that do to Turkey-American relations? Um, Turkey is a member of NATO. And as you know, you can't dump anybody from NATO without a unanimous vote, which means Turkey has to vote itself out and it won't. Um, where does this leave... Turkey and the United States? I mean, this is the very formidable question for Turkish-US relations. And it's really, you know, it's on the table right now because of Sweden wanting to accede to NATO. I mean, why the Sweden, now in fact, the Financial Times yesterday had a op-ed by the prime minister or premier of Sweden arguing that we want to be and we need to be in NATO. Now, why? Because it's pushing back against Russia. Sweden and Finland are an essential element of American foreign policy and our ability to push back against Russia in the region and stop them in connection, hopefully, in Ukraine. So this is part of the um, very befuddling and problematic um, balancing test that the United States is trying to enter into here to deal with Turkey at the same time as a NATO power when, when Turkey is actually taking actions or not taking actions that interfere with American foreign policy. Now, where are we right now today? And then we can talk about Russia. I mean, right now, Biden came to the reporters and he said, okay, um, Turkey's going to, you know, Sweden will become part of NATO and Turkey will get the F-16s. Okay. So, Nobody had connected it that way before because everybody was saying, gee whiz, it's really not connected. But of course, everything is connected. So the Congress, of course, and that's the fact, has to approve this sale. Now, to going back a little bit in history, um, you know, Turkey went ahead and it acquired the S-400 system from Russia. Now, I mean... <laughs> In my rea the reaction I get from Turks is, and I always get this reaction, is like, how come Turkey got the S-400, but you know, Greece got an S-300, an S-400, an F-35, how come they get that treatment and we don't get you know, the same treatment? Now, that's an important thing to understand. So first of all, the S-400 
is a smart system. And Turkey was in the F-35 program. That's our super, super secret stealth fighter. So the point is, if you have the S-400, you can actually, and the Russians, you can actually glean classified and highly secret data from the F-35. So Turkey was thrown out of the F-35 program. Indeed, their pilots were asked to leave the country. And, uh, and then uh, President Trump placed sanctions on Turkey, which he had to do because the Congress passed a National Defense Authorization Act provision that said they had to be sanctioned. But the sanction that they got was very mild sanction. They, they sanctioned some office called the Directorate of Defense of the President. No, who knows what this is? I, I don't know. It is not like sanctioning Russia over Ukraine. It's like not. It's just, it's kind of like a, a, a slap on the fingers, but didn't wasn't meant to hurt, but was meant to criticize. And the Senate, if you recall, passed resolutions against Turkey, uh, which were received with a lot of upset in Turkey. But again, the United States took action on this. Now about the Greece part, which I think is important to keep in mind, there is an imbalance between American foreign policy to Greece and to Turkey. I mean, we, we do see this. We've seen this historically with Cyprus. Uh, the United States put a boycott on Turkey because of Cyprus. I mean, Turkey is a major NATO power. It's the second most significant NATO power, yet it is treated with equivalence to Greece. Now, there's nothing wrong with Greece. I'm all for Greece. Greece is an ally of the United States. But the Turks' view is, well, now you see the things that are going on in the Aegean, they have all these endless disputes over Aegean Sea, and then of course, Eastern Mediterranean. And we need help on this issue. So that's where we get a big disconnect. And the biggest disconnect is in Congress. In the United States Congress, we have Senator Menendez, who is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who has said, no, no, a thousand, you didn't say it exactly like this. No, no, a thousand, I am not going to approve any of the F-16s for Turkey. And of course I will approve armaments for Greece. That's the message they get from the Congress. Now Biden is going to have to finesse this because he basically needs Sweden in NATO. Now, prediction on this, we have the Vilnius summit coming up on NATO in July. And I think, I hope that, uh, you know, the Turkey will, you know, agree to Sweden. It has to be unanimous, agree. I think Hungary is also out there, but I think that one is not the big uh, obstacle. And then they can come to the NATO meeting and then it can be presented as a good NATO member. Um, uh, uh, you can't throw someone out of NATO. Uh, you keep hearing this, you know, Turkey's not a good NATO member. They should throw them out. You can't do it. Um, and and, and nor, is it, nor would that be a good policy. I think that's, that's doing, that's going a retrograde approach. I think the best approach is work with Turkey, try to understand their interests and try to get, get uh, the results we need. Now about the Ukraine war, that one I think needs to come to a conclusion because when we talk about Russia, Russia's position, and I think Turkey could actually be an important conduit. And I think the United States has used Turkey as a conduit because of its relation with Russia. Because of Turkey's relations with Russia, we can use our good friendship with Turkey to help with policy issues like vexing things like the Ukraine war. This has to be stopped. And President Erdogan could be helpful in order to do that because of his relationship with, uh, with Turkey. But Sweden's got to come into NATO. Biden said so. And that to me is a, is a, is a key point. Now, as far as Russia going forward, that's a trajectory. It's Robert Frost. I can't think of a better poem than two roads diverge in a wood. Which one am I going to take? Am I going to take the Russian road or am I going to take the um, the uh, American road? And the truth of the matter is, there's no. That's not a choice. Uh, the, the 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 choice is America. The choice is the West, and that has to be the indispensable choice for Turkey. There is no alternative um, from going with the West. We were long times allies, Turkey, United States. And we should continue that alliance and we should stop Russia. So going back to something that you said a few minutes ago, uh, Greece and Turkey and how Greece is treated differently from Turkey. And one could say, well, they don't like us because we're Muslim or they don't like us for the old Ottoman. I don't know. They could say whatever they want. But the fact <laughs> is that Greece did not occupy Cyprus um, and nobody recognizes Turkey's occupation of Cyprus except for Turkey. 
Um, and Greece doesn't have a relationship with Hamas, which the U.S. doesn't care for. Um, so there are things that Turkey actually chooses to do that Greece hasn't chosen to do. Yes, I, they did buy Russian air defenses. So how much of this is just Turkey saying, whatever I do, you have to accept it? And how much of it is legitimate American criticism of Turkish policy? And by the way, I'll just add that as far as the Aegean and the Eastern Med, right. um, energy, Israel has invited Turkey numerous times to join the consortium to talk about how to draw those lines. And Turkey instead drew a border with Libya straight across the Eastern Med, which doesn't work very well, but never mind. Um, so Turkey actually does these things, I think, just to to boots people and it works. People get angry. I was just reading that, um, you know, the one big dream of Turkey is to have a pipeline, you know, from the Israeli fields and to be able to be an energy conduit, get energy and, and, and ship it up to Europe. But I was reading that now Cyprus, the Republic of Cyprus, uh, is trying to make a deal with Israel to basically transship the energy, then LNG it, and then ship it up to Europe. Uh, so this is very, very significant. The Eastern Med Forum. The way I see the Eastern Med Forum and I see Cyprus, maybe it's a little bit difficult. The way the Turks see it is like this. In other words, um, um, look, I mean, I've spoken to Turkish Cypriots. And again, it depends who you speak to. I, 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 you know, I didn't check their stories. I'm not a reporter. They say that in the time when Turkey came into Cyprus, they came in, so what they told me that they came in, they saved the Turkish Cypriots. Now, I didn't check it, I don't know, but the truth of the matter is there's a great antipathy and it's very unfortunate. The Greek and Turkish Cypriots should be getting together on that island and live together in peace and in harmony. But the problem that you have, it's sort of like you and your parents are always around. The Greek government and the Turkish government is always around in these negotiations and they don't allow the kids to talk. And also the diaspora is very significant. The Greek diaspora, the Cypriot diaspora does not want a solution. I mean, again, I'm, 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 maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but you know, these, these problems resonate into the Congress as well when it's looking at these issues. The truth of the matter is, if there's an exploration Eastern Med, and it benefits the Republic of Cyprus, it should be shared with the Turkish Cypriots, right? But that has not been the approach. In other words, even on this deal that we're talking about, that they're contemplating, it's always this idea of this antipathy between the two societies. And it is definitely a tremendous level of antipathy. There's no question about it. But a lot of it has to do with the sort of the parents, if you wish, the guarantor. Was Greece and Turkey, and of course, Great Britain. You know, UK is involved too because UK has bases on Cyprus and Akrotiri and Dekalia, so they're in the mix as well. A lot of Brits live there, and you know, they're huge communities of expats, and they like to live there. So, as far as the Eastern Med is concerned, I mean, the Eastern Med Forum really coalesced against Turkey when Turkey went to explore in the Eastern Med. The whole group got together and said, but you can't explore yet. Total and NE and all these companies had uh, joint venture deals with these countries to do uh, explorations. So Turkey, I mean, Egypt had an MOU with Greece. So Turkey made an MOU with Libya. Now, if you, I mean, it's almost, it's almost like my, the drawings that my granddaughter makes, you know, in, 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 in the nursery where she, draw squiggly lines. I mean, these lines, if you look at them, the demarking, uh, the demarcating the lines, they, they make no sense. They overlap and there's no way to work a solution with those MOUs. The purpose of the MOUs was to just, on all sides, was to just make the thing stop in place and not have anybody have any rights to the resources. And that's awfully stupid because there is a big energy need in the world and in the region. So they have to get together and do that. And I think that the warming relations between Israel and Turkey, to my mind, will be helpful, hopefully, to um, thaw that out a little bit and maybe work up a deal. But again, um, optimism, you know, doesn't no, always work. We need optimism because we're coming to the end of our program. Okay. And as people who listen to us know, I like to go out on an optimistic note. So let's take your thought that the energy conversation could turn out to be a positive construct for the for the region. Give us another, give us one more 
optimistic thought about Turkey's future. And then we can close on a happy note. All right, well, I thought I said happy things all along. I thought there were a lot of good things and I was saying, um, I do agree with you on the energy that is really crucial. Um, I, I, I'm hopeful, and this is, a, this is not happy or sad, I'm hopeful that the relationship between the United States and Turkey does not become a transactional relationship where we make quid pro quo deals. Okay, I'll give you F-16s, you agree to Sweden joining NATO. That is not a deep friendship between allies. And, and I think that Biden's call, uh, Biden's reach out to Erdogan was a good thing. I think that the United States is going to think about doing things better going forward. And so Turkey has to as well to make that relationship a better relationship. And why? Well, there's the, the um, uh, imperative of the Russian aggression in Ukraine. So again, I'm, you know, it, I have to be optimistic that the leading powers in the world, including Turkey, will understand the need to stop that aggression. We didn't talk about China at all, but obviously the rising China and in its influence in the region, all of these things are formidable issues in which, and I think positively US and Turkey can work together and hopefully forge solutions. Where I am very optimistic, and as a happy, happy note, is on the Israel-Turkish relationship. I think that has been moving along in a very good way. I think the optics and the environment and the feelings are very good, very good. And I hope that they will in continue to uh, prosper. The trade between the two countries is a big you know, deficit on the side of Israel, you know, Israel versus Turkey. Let's get more trade, more tourism, more interactions, and obviously the energy piece is going to be very important as well. And interacting in this way, the Israeli relief to Turkey was very, very important and great. You know, the story of the Israeli soldier telling about how um, he, he received a coin from a, a, a Turkish family thanking the Israelis for saving their child. And they said, this is what we do when our child is born. We thank the person who helped deliver our child. I mean, gee whiz, I mean, that, that's important. So more person-to-person -person contacts, more good relations between Turkey and Israel, I think will, will be good for, for Turkey and Israel, and also will help Turkey with its relations with the United States. So on that note, thank you for an optimistic end to the program, but thank you really for showing us sort of what's going on in Turkey and what they care about and what they vote on and how they do it. Um, I do think occasionally that we get caught up in the American prism and um, this was very helpful. So Mark Meyerowitz, thank you for joining us. To everybody out there, see you soon. Thank you so much.